Listen to me, John. You have their power. You can make things happen by will alone. They call it tuning. That is how they make the buildings change. Just now you acted out of self-defense, a reflex, but I can teach you to control your power consciously. Let me help you, John. Together we can stop them. We can take the city back. And we can teach you how to control your feelings towards the films inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide through the world of cinematic Lovecraft inspirations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I am Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. Yes, they recently banned from Twitter, James McCormick. Yes. Woohoo! <laughs> For some reason, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> and today we'll be reviewing 1998's Dark City, written by Alex Proyas, Lem Dobbs, and David S. Goyer, and directed by Alex Proyas. And joining us to discuss, uh, you heard her for the first time on our podcast on our wonderful table read of At the Mountains of Madness. She's Josephine Maria Janicek Liszczynski. Thank you for joining us, Josephine. Hooray! Yay! Great pronunciation. I also want to hear more about the Twitter. Um, I have never been banned from Twitter yet, and I'm, like, terrified. It'll happen any day now. <laughs> it's, it's my first time, and it's supposedly for... From what I can gather, it's uh, it's basically saying that I created another account because I got banned before. And I'm like, what are they talking about? Like, I, mm-hmm. again, have no idea what went to like go on. And I'm like, oh, um, I got an email that I was banned. And I'm like, can I see why? No, we can't show you any of that. Okay. I sent a complaint and I haven't heard in three days, so. And you won't for like months. That's sorry. Twitter is the worst. I, when I was being harassed last year, I got, I, every time I reported something, Mm -hmm. they would like delete the tweet and then send me back. Oh, we didn't find this offensive. And then they like, there was no, and this was like six months later. So it's like, yeah, whatever. They're the worst. Um, I'm supposed to introduce myself now, right? I'm taking charge. Taking charge. Okay. (laughs) By all means. Welcome to my podcast. Um, So, yes, I am Josephine Maria Janicek Leschinski. I am an author, um, sometimes a film critic, um, a tabletop role playing game designer and writer. Mm. This year, I um, am really focusing on my books. So, I'm not really putting anything out this year, probably. I need to finish writing a couple. In 2016, I released the novel Coven in Essex County, which is a prequel to Shadow Over Innsmouth. Um, about the women in Innsmouth and where they are and what happened to them. Wonderful. Um, Yeah, and that's on Visitant Lit. You can actually read it for free on my website, jmyales.com. I just made my last name shorter. (laughs) And then I am, um, last year I released two role-playing games, um, The Witch, The Wolf, and The Wedding. I always mess that name up, Witch, Wolf, (laughs) Wedding. And then um, Crush, which is is actually a dual uh, RPG. It's a kaiju competitive RPG. Nice. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to say about myself right now. I am just sincerely working. Like I, I'm writing like 2,000 words a day, trying to finish two books this year. Mm-hmm. It's gonna get done. It's gonna happen. I'm gonna put more books out. Well, that automatically makes you one of the most um, accomplished guests on our podcast. So, as yep. you alluded to, this is now your podcast. So, thank you for letting <laughs> us join you to discuss oh, you're you're Dark welcome. City. Um, yeah, so on top of your uh, impressive resume, um, yes, we suggested a few titles. Um, we're like, Josephine, we want to get you on. Here's the stuff that we are thinking about talking about. And you were like, Dark City. So without kind of getting into too many details of the film, because we're eventually talking about it, but what is your relationship with the film? Like, when you first saw it, how you first responded to it? I, I want to know what kind of led you to like, yep, we're going to do, do we're gonna do Dark City on my podcast. Yeah, so I actually saw Dark City when I was in high school. Um, actually, we were talking before the recording started about like illness and shingles. So in high school, I had shingles. Yep. It was terrible. I'm bringing that back. But um, <laughs> that was a time in my life when I shingles puts you out for like weeks. Um, and I couldn't be in school because if you have not had chicken pox and you have shingles, you can give someone chicken pox. If you're an adult, and you get chicken pox for the first time, you can die. So I like was not allowed anywhere near, you know, a school full of children and a possible outbreak of chicken pox. Mm. Um, so during that time is when I really got into film. I was basically stuck inside. I ended up like my dad would just bring home stacks of DVDs from our library for me to watch. This was pre-Netflix. This was back in the, the dark era um, of like tube TVs. And my dad's wife is actually, she worked in a theater. She's really into cinema and she had all these DVDs. I remember um, we had nowhere to put them. So she just had like stacks of DVDs by our front door. Nice. And it was just like the most random stuff. Um, she had like the, 
you know, the, the French film Blue, White, Red, um, that's three, three film series, as well as like, you know, all of a series episodes of Sex and the City. Um, so it was just a really random array, but Dark City was one of them and I'd never heard of it. Um, I was super into the Matrix. The Matrix came out when I was like in middle school and I was really into the whole trilogy because um, the last two are, are great. So just so that's clear. Um, <laughs> but Dark City is one of them. I watched it and hated it. Um, it was the theatrical cut. I barely remember it. And I just remember being like, I don't understand this movie. It's really, I couldn't get into it, hated it. It's really dark. It was hard to see in my TV. Um, and then I rewatched it twice. <laughs> so, and I, I don't even think then I loved it. I, and then I rewatched it for this, the director's cut a couple of, like a month ago. And it was, you know, very interesting. I enjoyed it. I still don't think that I love this movie, but hmm. it's so interesting. Um, and like visually I'm, I'm on this whole like dark deco Batman, the animated series kick. Oh, nice. And so like anything that's like, you know, deco mid century or earlier, I'm really interested in right now. So visually, I think it's a fascinating movie. I love Kiefer Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is the best use of him, but you know, he really, I love seeing when he gets into a characterization that's not just like the classic, like we all think of him in Lost Boys, the bad boy evil right. guy. You know, sure. I love him in like Firewalk with me. And, you know, he's very similar in this film. So that's sort of where my interest in the movie comes from. Okay. Um, yeah. And this is a, like, I've seen, I think this is the third time I've ever seen this movie watching it. And every time I've watched it, it's been like gaps of 10 years. Like I saw it for the first mm-hmm. time I think when I was in college or shortly after college, then I watched it again, maybe like 10 years later. And now I watched it again for this podcast. And there's so many things that I remember about it enough where it's like, I think about this movie every now and again, but enough where I've forgotten it where it's like, Oh yeah, this, this thing was so cool about this. Um, and forgot, I guess um, that how critically acclaimed but also how much of a box office failure it was i didn't realize like this wasn't just beloved by roger ebert it was his number one film of 1998 which like Mm -hmm. wow really okay um and it's funny because i i mean we we live in a a world now where like the matrix was such a groundbreaking path paving influential movie in so many regards story-wise filmmaking thematic influences that it's hard to forget this came before that so mm-hmm. watching the opening sequence, especially with Rufus Sewell, like in the bathtub, I'm like, wow, this looks a lot like The Matrix. Like, uh, well, actually, The Matrix actually kind of looks a lot like this movie. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love in your notes, you noted how close they are in production and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, yes. Yeah, I mean, the strangers are very much like the agents. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the, the world itself is very much like people going to sleep and waking up and like, oh, we want to just change who you are. Mm-hmm. it's kind of like alluded to throughout the matrix and it's like yeah it's not a copy but it's weird like these all these like creative people at the same time were almost coming with the same you know similar ideas and and I, and, I, and, and this film was one that i saw in theaters when it came out it was it actually came out it finally came out the day my brother it was my brother's 13th birthday so i was 18 he was i was going to be 18 i was like oh we should go see this movie dark city it sounds cool mm-hmm. To this day, he he still brings up. He's like he hated the film. <laughs> you know, oh, he's no. like, "What? Why did you take me to see this shitty film?" I'm like, uh, well, "Whatever." But I I liked it. But again, it wasn't like something that stuck with me when when the Matrix came out the, the year later. I'm like, "Huh? That kind of was." I I thought I saw this film already, and I didn't think, it, and I didn't think anything of it until years later, like when I I randomly bought the DVD. The, the old DVD for like two bucks mm-hmm. and I rewatched it still liked it but I was like okay and then like you said Jim it's it's been like almost 10 years spans of when I've seen this film again like I got when, when I saw the theater you know the um the director's cut I was like oh this film is like really good <laughs> like I see I, you know like the whole freaking narration by Keeper Subtle in the beginning very similar to Blade Runner yep the mm-hmm. narration it's like we know people are dumb, so we're gonna explain stuff. And yeah. it's like, no, you don't need to. Like, give me some get surprises. It. Yeah, like we we give us a surprise. And again, watching it again this time, I have a lot. I wrote a lot of weird stuff down, especially films that it was influenced by. And then seeing that, oh yeah, I you know like certain films I would see like I'm like wow that kind of looks like this film or it kind of looks like this you know manga. And I'm like oh yeah. Proyas and Goyer were fans of certain things that they yeah. kind of 
threw in there. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, it all makes sense. And yeah, I mean, it was cool watching it again. And you know, I I watched the director's cut. Um, Jim, I know you watched the theatrical. Yeah, okay, cut. only yeah. And you know, and I now not on purpose. I will say because I watched. <laughs> I so I have the Blu-ray of this one, which gives mm-hmm. you the option you can do the theatrical or the director's cut. And for some right. reason. I don't know if it was my PlayStation that was acting up. I just had to restart it. But like I kept trying to watch the director's cut and it would freeze. So I restarted the PlayStation and then I tried the theatrical cut and it played fine. So I I think to this day, I've still only seen the theatrical cut. So I'll be curious to get into that conversation. But even before we discuss the film, Josephine, we ask this of every guest who comes on because this is a, a podcast which is dedicated to the films or uh you know inspired by or adapted from hp lovecraft so i mean when you especially as a as an author and a tabletop game creator like when you hear the term lovecraftian like what do you think of what does that inspire in you like what draws you to that kind of stuff thematically um so that's a great question i think when i hear something is going to be lovecraft that this is a two-part answer for me Mm -hmm. when i hear something is going to be lovecraft and someone is like this is lovecraftian this is you know this is so lovecraftian i assume there's going to be tentacles (laughs) um you know i I think about the creature design like i just assume that and i don't think um i have a very dear friend bobby deary who's an hp lovecraft um he's he's a pulp like historian but i think um, H.P. Lovecraft is certainly his specialty. And I don't know if you would agree. I feel like we could have a really interesting conversation on this, but I, I know he fights this. Tentacular is not inherently Lovecraftian, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a very limited section of his stories. Um, people really latched onto that Cthulhu with, uh, character, which is really cool and cool seeming, but that's not, I wouldn't even say that body horror is core to most of Lovecraft stuff. Certainly some of the stories, but like, you know, color out of space, very, you know, bubbling. And, um, uh whatever the damage horror but on the flip side when i think of something that's lovecraftian when i was creating my own lovecraftian book and i i really call it a post lovecraftian or an anti-lovecraftian book because it was fighting against um his treatment of women his his you know erasure of women his erasure of uh you know wombs and vaginas in the procreation process mm-hmm. um or his uh, confronting his fear of them maybe when i think of lovecraftian i think it's going to be it's going to be pulling from um, random cultures, random mythologies, mishing, mishing, of them together. And then always that cosmic horror element in the sense that something big is happening and I'm never going to understand it. Like mm-hmm. that is, I think, core to, and I, to me, that is so indicative of like Lovecraft psychology. Like I think that's how he felt about his life in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, totally out of control. You know, not that his life was out of control, but he felt out of control. And that's where a lot of his anxiety seemed to stem from. If I can just like diagnose him. <laughs> but um, to me, so that's what's Lovecraftian to me. It's it's this, this miss, this picking and choosing of these cultures that have nothing to do with the author necessarily, mishing them together and then creating this cosmic horror um, fear out of it. Mm-hmm. Which just kind of tie into, I, I mean, one of the first notes that I took because uh, for this movie was I was basically kind of like, I resigned myself even before I rewatched it again. Like, well, this movie isn't really Lovecraftian in any, any way, shape or form to which you um, vehemently disagreed. I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, which, I mean, even hearing you say that, like, I I can kind of see it, because especially in this one's, like, even just visually how this movie is crafted, like, it is like The Matrix. It pulls a a lot of influences from a lot of different sources to create this thing where, yeah, there are these forces that are sort of beyond, or at least at the very beginning, beyond the comprehension of our human protagonists who are acting in ways that they basically feel they have no control over. Um, though, of course, this kind of does subvert it because our main character, John Murdoch, becomes the one who is able to, like, no, I'm in control now. He's the mm-hmm. Neo character. He is, right. like, you know, he, he reshapes destiny. But, um, yeah, so how, how do you... I, let's just kind of get into to, into the discussion of the movie itself. So how do you... How do you see Because I still... I see it as kind of, like, there are maybe Lovecraftian influences, but not mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, I would not put this in, like, you know, the, the same category as you know, the void or in the mouth of man or something, which is like, oh yeah, you clearly see the influences in there. Right. I would hazard that the void and the mouth of madness are certainly like almost, I just lost my words completely. They are um, like adaptations of Lovecraft. Like, I, you know, not even like, you know, they may not be directly this, it's this story we're adapting it. Like I did an adaptation of Lovecraft and it's not about Shadow over Smith. 
It's about mm. the setting in Zbeth. But um, he, so those, like, it's, it's almost easy to say these are Lovecraftian, but I think that we can go beyond Lovecraft's core um, kind of cast of characters. You know, the deep ones are characters that are brought into almost everyone's fiction. Like, China Mievel's um, Perdido Street Station has the deep ones in it, right? Like, th- sure. they show up everywhere. Um, for this one, it was Lovecraftian to me because it's very reminiscent of um, The Thing on the Doorstep which is kind of a lesser, not as popular a story, but really important to me because it's like the one story, it's one of like two stories that have women in them. Um, yeah. Asenith Waithe um, is, the, is, the, is the, one of the main characters in that story and one of the main antagonists, sort of, you know, there's the flip at the end. But um, so that whole idea of like higher beings that we don't understand, you know, beings that are more advanced than us, controlling us and slipping into our bodies and making things up, um, with our lives is very similar to this storyline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're not literally slipping into our bodies necessarily, though they did want to do that to John Murdoch. Like that's the end mm-hmm. of the movie, right? They want to inject him with all their memories. Um, but the other side is the physical production of the film. So we're looking at the architecture. This film is really special to me because it's so visually unique. Mm. Um, and the way, and, and they explain it narratively, right? They say, yes, we took like, all of these mishmash memories of architecture and time periods, and we put them together. So you have an automat, and like I think there's like a video phone at some point next yeah. to each other, you know. Um, and it's gorgeous, but it also to me is reminiscent of Lovecraft's own architectural creations. And we don't, I think when we talk about Lovecraft, we don't talk about the physicalities of the stories enough, mm, especially yep. when it comes to the cosmic horror. Like Cyclopean horror or Cyclopean um, architecture is something that we. Uh, took from him right like he came up with the idea of cyclopean that is a term from art history um, from Mycenaean architecture main, mainland Greece and Lovecraft studied classics when you study classics you learn all of these different um, architectural schools together so like Egypt and Greece and you know the Near East and they actually have very little to do with each other but when you're studying them you have these like sheets I, I was an art history major but when you're studying them, you have these sheets that put them all together and you have to be able to differentiate them, even though they have nothing to do with each other. And as his fiction, I can see that he, you know, took those ideas and just put them together. Um, another little tidbit about Cyclopean in particular, the idea of Cyclopean architecture, the, the, these massive pieces that Cyclopses would have to move, came from the fact that mainland Greeks didn't know who built the Mycenaean architecture, even it was their own um, like in, in the ancient world, it was their own people like 2000 years earlier. And so like at the year zero, they were like, who that fuck wrote, like built all these huge buildings must be a cyclops and stuff. Um, so that whole idea is very Lovecraftian. And that doesn't, ancient architecture doesn't play into this storyline, but the idea of picking and choosing, you know, things from human history that likely these humans don't even remember. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't remember who designed the first train or the first, you know, the automat, but it is a part of their, you know, the, the, what they're walking through. And that's part of the mystery too, because so many of them don't know their own history and they just kind of buy into it because they're kind of programmed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, and so maybe not Cyclopean in a, in a, a physical or literal sense, but more in the sense of like the, their physical existence has been shaped by these forces that are outside of them. And yeah, I, I, I love that thought and just like I, I forgot the production design, how amazing this was and just how when you really look at it, it really is a nondescript era. They pull from a lot of different things like this could take place in the same setting as The Crow or Seven or mm-hmm. um, or The Matrix or, you know, maybe uh, Tim Burton's Batman, even though I know Alex Proyas has been explicit that he wanted to see more realistic and less theatrical than a Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Um which I'm fine with because I don't really love that movie. That's my one of my hottest of hot uh, cinematic mm. takes. Um, but but just in, the, in in that sense of like yeah, this movie came out in 1998 and like and just like uh, Batman Returns, like it came out in what 1992. But yet a lot of the cars and stuff are like, is this from the 50s or the 60s? Like what what is this thing? And just this idea of especially with who the strangers are, you almost kind of get the sense of they're experimenting maybe but also maybe they don't really understand so they're just like yes this these are cars that people drive right let's throw them in there and then it just kind of it subtly kind of sets you off like this none of this all really kind of syncs up with each other there's something weird about this um 
And I and I I love that about it. And also, you know, how it looks because we're we're kind of inundated, I think, nowadays with media which is literally too dark to watch, where it's like you have to adjust your TV to kind of like or God forbid you have a lamp which casts glare off your TV screen because then like I can't understand what the fuck is going on right now. Yeah. Hello, Game of Thrones. Uh but <laughs> But this one was like, it is dark, but also, I mean, Darius Wolski shot it, who was a longtime collaborator with with Ridley Scott. And so this is like dark, but also not to a detriment of like where you don't understand, like, you know, you can see at all times what is happening because of just how how noir it is, but it, it, to, enough to obscure things, but not enough to actually like literally block your viewing experience, which I really appreciate. I will say that even the way that these, um, they're called the strangers, right? I'm like losing yeah. what this movie's yeah. about. Okay. <laughs> I don't like look up all the character names again. Um, <laughs> but they, um, even the way that the strangers interact with, you know, what makes someone human, because that's their whole goal, right? They're like, we're trying to become like humans. We want to understand humans. Number one, the first thing they do is once they find a human who's maybe compatible with them is try to turn that human into them by injecting yeah. him with all of their, it's like, yeah, okay, that you didn't really reach your goal. But <laughs> even the idea of um, how they try to experiment on humans totally misses the point of what being human is or what another experience is. They seem, we don't get a ton of, you know, interaction with what they are and why they are. Um, oh, the other thing about Lovecraft, sorry, this just came up. Um, they're like energy beings. And I think you see one at one point. It's sort of, it looks like a Shogath to me, frankly, like a mini Shogath. It's like yeah, very, it yeah. you know, little yeah. baby tentacles, baby, a, a little like insectoid body. And I know that was a choice. They did not want to make them like insects because that mm -hmm. was overused quote. Um, so that was very Lovecraftian to me as well. But um, to go back to the, the drives of humans, they, the beginning of the film is John Murdoch is stuck in a hotel room or whatever, like a you know long-term hotel room with a murdered woman, right? She's like slaughtered. She's got those weird spirals on her. Um, and that's so like dropping someone in after something, they've done something horrible yeah. is so different than making them do it. Like that would have made this a straight horror film for me, you know, if, you, if they were making people do things. But instead they, they have the scene where the super poor, angry couple are dropped into a beautiful dining room where suddenly they're very wealthy. Like even their interactions with being stuck in their own memories makes it so they don't understand that what we're doing and why we're doing it is more important than like being dropped afterwards and how do we react? Like the reaction is not the core of our, you know, being human. And even to me, like interacting with these Lovecraftian creatures in Lovecraft stories, it's very much like that. It's not about, it's always being told from someone else, especially like Thing on the Doorstep. Thing on the Doorstep literally starts, I knew a guy one time. Like that's the start, <laughs> right? Like I knew this guy, let me tell you this crazy story. Now I'm going to go, you know, kill him or whatever he does in the end. Um, but like that's half of Lovecraft stories, right? It's like, oh, I found this book and read this crazy story. Let me tell you about it. Don't read the book. I'll tell you about it. Right. Um, so, so that too, that, that whole interaction with being dropped in afterwards and it kind of what happened being relayed to us was very Lovecraftian as well. Yeah, that that makes sense. And especially there oftentimes is in his stories like a quest for I need to understand or I, I need to figure out what is happening and why and specifically what is happening to me. And that's why his character is always someone or, or typically someone who is a, a rational human being, a detective or a professor or a scholar or something where it's like, I'm going to pursue this with logic. Um, and that's kind of what John Murdoch does. And, and I I was reminded uh, so much of this of like, I put it in the notes like a Silent Hill game in mm -hmm. the sense of yeah. weird shit is happening. You don't know why at, as a character or as the player, but you have these little hints where, like you find a note or you find this or like go to this location and just and then there are these otherworldly horrific things happening. Um, and yeah, it, it's. I, I regret I don't I don't want to say I regret watching the theatrical cut, but it does really seem like, yeah, the theatrical cut was made to address a lot of like, hey, audiences are confused. So let's start with an opening voiceover. Um, and yeah, so there's three of us on this, all of whom watched it. I apparently was the only one who watched the theatrical cut. So I am curious as to like, what do you guys know what the differences are? Like, what does the director's cut really improve upon? There's no um, uh, voiceover in the beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which I found much more interesting. I don't know, James, do you know the more specifics? I don't remember. It's um, lighter, like it's, it's easier to see. Yeah, it's very, it's much lighter, like like a lot, a lot of very, very color corrected. And, you know, it, 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 you could see a lot more stuff, but really it's just more like subtle character moments 
and the no nar- narration. Like to me, the the most important part is no narration. And mm. I think it's I think it's but but it's funny because like I don't remember the theatrical cut at all now. It's been <laughs> so long since I've seen that cut. Yeah. And I think it's like twelve minutes more, this version. Yeah. So so it's a lot of like little things between you know William Hurt's detective and you know Jennifer Connelly, and then more with Rufus, you know, like his John Murdoch, just running around town and just like freaking out like what wake up wake up like, yeah having his old possession moment yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i love it and like and and that's the kind of thing what i what i love about this like what one of the things i love about this film is like it's like this weird mashup of you know a film noir but also and, and film noir was influenced by german expressionism mm-hmm. which makes sense and it does feel like this 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 film, if you said like nothing about the aliens, nothing about that, if you just showed someone and like started off, they would, you know, if they knew what film noir was, they'd be like, oh, this is, oh yeah, this is definitely a film noir because it's some guy down in his luck waking up and like, am I a murderer? I don't remember who I am. <laughs> and we don't know, like, and that's kind of the other thing that I love about this film is that you really don't know until really late into the film if he's actually a murderer or not. Yeah. yeah. Like, like even then they keep showing, even when, and I love Richard O'Brien so much. Like I love him to death. Like, and, and I love the strangers are based on Riff Raff originally. Like, <laughs> I, I love that. And then he went to meet Richard O'Brien. He's like, yeah, you'd be perfect actually as one of my characters. <laughs> but but he's so cool. Like when he gets the memories and he starts doing the killing and replicating it. And it's like this creepy thing where is it because of the memories that he's doing it? Or is it something like deep down like, because then we see like, you know, these other, you know, the other strangers being like that, like very quick to uh, like, oh, kill him. Like, no, 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 nothing else. Just kill him. Especially, especially the, um, the little child, which still creeps me out. That child. <laughs> I loved that detail. Oh, I love that too. Yeah, but it's great, but it's like, ugh. and that, the other thing that really creeps me out to this day is the, uh, the gnashing of the teeth. Like when they're all like tuning together and it's mm-hmm. like and like and, and it just reminds me of like, I don't know why, but it reminds me of you know the chatterer and Hellraiser. Like oh, always yeah. like, mm-hmm. like yes. that just creeps me out. And again, you know, Hellraiser, I think, is a film we should cover at some point, but mm-hmm. that's that you know, you know, well it's Clive Barker. Might as well bring another one yeah, Barker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, but you know, it's a smashing of stuff. And the one thing I you know, watching it again, I'm like, while I'm watching, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of spirals in this movie. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I think of Junji Ito, yes, Uzumaki, which came out the same year as this movie, 1998, which is so weird that, again, all these different things. And then, you know, City of Lost Children and Delicatessen, which mm-hmm. filmed that Brazil is very much at Ian Richardson, yeah. who is in this, was in Brazil. So it's it's this weird mashup that somehow works. It shouldn't work. It really shouldn't. Cause like, and especially <laughs> you know, when this film came out, you also had like, what was the other film um, with um, Craig Bierko, um, The 13th Floor. Yeah. Also mm-hmm. very similar to this. And it's like, I kind of find that amazing about film where you have like different filmmakers doing their own things and somehow like they all come out around the same time. It's like, oh, they must've copied it. No, it's just somehow Maybe everyone was reading the same thing at the same time, or someone talked to someone else. Hey, I'm doing a film based on this, and like because originally Dark City was more about the detective. Than, yeah, I, I read that that it was supposed to just be about right. him and solving this murder. Right, which would have been kind of boring, actually. It like, would have been like any right? other like noir film that was pushed out in the '40s, you know, because like we gotta get another noir. We need, <laughs> we need those box <laughs> office numbers. Yeah, exactly. So, and while I love William Hurt, which again this is uh not really a spoiler but later on when he uh i just had to bring this joke in i had this joke uh, while watching it the other day i was like uh uh-huh, he's really lost in space oh, boy. Uh, like, again uh, he came out the same year though he made <laughs> lost in space the same year as this i have a theory about the 90s um so i've been doing a lot of work on Batman the Animated Series, which is, I consider a fantasy setting. Um, It is very, you know, Dark Deco is the official name for their aesthetic. They named it. 
Um, it's beautiful. It's very similar to this film in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, but it is a mashup in the same way. They have computers all over the place because it is the nineties, but then everything is like the 1940s through fifties, occasionally early sixties. And then occasionally you get like some eighties gangbanger, you know, and like the, the leather <laughs> jacket and the tight pants, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this fascinating mishmash. Um, it's not, I wouldn't even call it a retro future because it's present, right? It's a retro yeah. present. And I would consider dark city, even though I think it's pure sci- science fiction, um, I, I would consider it present rather than, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, an alternative history or a, a retro future, even though the aliens are so futuristic and they could be, they were out somewhere else. We don't know. They mm-hmm. could be that way right now. But, um, I think the nineties, we were hitting on this moment when, um, you know, the mid century had firmly ended finally, and then we're approaching the millennium, you know, Y2K and Y2K, I think when a lot of these films were being made and written had not quite settled into the public consciousness consciousness net yet Mm -hmm. excuse me Mm -hmm. i feel like the matrix was like y2k boom it's here (laughs) you know that that really ushered in the y2k and i was just thinking to myself as you were talking like man i wish that the matrix so the matrix aesthetic really defined the first era of the new millennium right Mm -hmm. 2000 2010 was all you know leather pleather clubbing green you know (laughs) um, all of this very synthetic stuff and I, I was almost sad that we didn't get this weird mishmash of like mid-century and further um, design, but we did in the 90s. It happened in all these films, a bunch of what you just mentioned. Yeah. And I, I think I think it does come out of kind of a Fritz Lang, like, you know, German expressionist mashup as well. But I think that The Matrix hit into, in comparison to this movie, um, the internet in a way that none of these films ever touched. And the internet was about to happen. It was happening then. Like when I was in middle school and watching the Matrix movies, I was exploring my identity online. I was discovering myself. So the Matrix was super tuned into where I was. Um, And this movie was probably tuned into where I was like earlier as a younger person, but also pre-internet. And, you know, I think that the internet hit and that was a a major shift, but we still had this beautiful moment that Dark City encapsulates so well in design as well as ideas. Well, we are exploring those past ideas, both visually and in storylines, because the noir, um, I don't think really had a reoccurrence until recently, like itself, as far as a genre. Yeah, and and it is kind of one of those genres that like, I think is, I don't want to say dead, but when it, when it is brought back, it's kind of, um, it's either shades of something or it's kind of like a, a gimmick. And I don't say gimmick in a bad way, but more just like, yeah. it's it's sort of like a special occasion sort of a thing. Right. Um, and you, yeah, you mentioned, I mean, Metropolis and all these influences. And I had mentioned earlier, uh, I did want to read a couple quotes because Roger Ebert, like I said, listed it as his best film of 1998. He has two quotes from it that I want to say. The best film of 1998 was also one of the more obscure. It opened without a compelling campaign and was yanked before it could find an audience. Now on video, oh, video, it's beginning to build a reputation that may eventually link it with Blade Runner, another slow starter that gained cult status. And in his review, he said, Dark City by Alex Proyas resembles its great silent predecessor Metropolis in asking what it is that makes us human and why it cannot be changed by decree. Both films are about false worlds created to fabricate ideal societies and in both the machinery of the rulers is destroyed by the hearts of the ruled. And man, yeah, it was, remember when studios used to give opportunities to weird genre fairs that would not hold your hand like it's kind of a miracle that the matrix not just existed but was the culture influence it was because that's like i remember that came out when i was a freshman in in high school and asking a friend who saw i'm like what is that movie about and he just kind of paused for a little bit he's like artificial intelligence i I don't really know how (laughs) to describe it kind of and it's just it's that thing of like this was an original idea. Dark City was an original idea, and it's a, a mishmash of genres. It's an homage to what has to be, what what came before, and like the best science fiction deals with the existentialism of like you know what it, is it to be a human and what is that human experience. Um, but it also was a box office flop. But it was still like New Line was like yeah let's let's take a chance and let's make this weird genre movie which like still does exist dune is a weird genre movie from denny villeneuve but it's also yeah it existed before um and it's so, a yeah. proven series like that's a proven you know yeah, right. Mm-hmm. right um i would i mean i really think that the availability of indie film um and those 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 film markets the, I'm sorry, the studios that are like sort of mid-market where they're like not quite box office but they they have the indie budgets. Um, 
like A24 is one that comes to mind. Um, I wouldn't call them a box, you know, like a blockbuster, you know, they've certainly had their moments, but um, I think that the availability of streaming, you know, Netflix changed the world at the same time. We're talking, you know, Tom, we're talking about right after that, we got the Netflix moment. Um, I think that that actually made things harder for the major studios because audiences like us. So I used to see, you know, triple A blockbuster films and my weird ass movies in the same theater from the same studios. And as soon as I had access to anything else, like foreign films, whatever, I completely stopped watching blockbusters. Like, I don't think I've seen a blockbuster since, um, I think I watched Resurrections and before that it had been like a couple of years since I saw like one of these triple A big releases. And I do think that the indie studios having more availability um, to general audiences kind of cut in on that market a little bit. So I do think that they won't give as much of a chance, but I also think it's because they're trying to grasp at dollars that are going out the door for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, and that, that whole, in the beginning when I was talking about how I got into this movie, when I was ill and had those access to those DVDs, when I was a kid, um, we had, we're lucky we had like, you know, our art house theater in town, but the art house theater would only show like maybe a dozen movies a year. And so I, I had the chance to see a dozen foreign movies a, a year, which sounds cool, but, um, you know, they, they're, they're only there for a weekend or whatever. Um, our particular library system sued a DVD um, distributor and it gave them, when they sued them, the distributor couldn't, I don't remember why, but they couldn't pay back the money that they owed. So instead they just donated like thousands of DVDs to our library system. And suddenly we had, um, I'm trying to remember the particular house, but like I saw the Japanese film Versus because it was in our library system, which like at that time wouldn't have been a thing if this lawsuit hadn't happened. Um, and then like the film Sequence and the Jane Campion film um, Sweetie. Like I saw that movie at 16 and it totally, all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, I can see movies where like women have a viewpoint. What, you know, and like versus was just this like batshit stupid movie about zombies. And I loved it. And I had like, you would never see that from a blockbuster. And I was lucky. Like the only reason I got into film and like became a film critic, I believe is because my library system sued a DVD distributor um, and happened to get this influx of foreign movies. And of course they donated the movies no one was buying. So it was like these weird, oh, Pan Asian was the, was a studio that they had a lot of DVDs from. Okay. But um, yeah, it was, so I, I do think that the, you know, the indie market is cutting up there, especially with streaming. Yeah. And I think that it's putting pressure on the blockbuster films, not, you know, give access to or give um, give a chance to these other movies because they can't lose any more money, yeah. especially after these last two years. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, I also on a, a brief tangent, uh, the Blank Check podcast is now going to go through the Jane Campion's uh, filmography, so I'm very excited about that. Um, yes. Yeah, but no, th- this is, yeah, this was like, um, I'm, I'm so glad that that we decided to do this one is that I got to, to rewatch it because I was also remembering like, yeah, Alex Proyas um, used to be the shit, man. Like, I mean, I, I think this film holds up better than The Crow. I think the more I watch The Crow, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, a that's a take. OK, yeah. that is a take. All right. Whoa, I was just going to drop that one. Okay. I, I don't wow. I don't. Now, to be clear, I don't think The Crow is bad by any stretch of the imagination. I think The yeah. Crow is a bit more stylized um and dark to the extent of like uh, I, I find this harder to to kind of get into than dark city um but i mean even with that you had the back-to-back you know the crow um and dark city which like that's a great one-two combination um i know he followed this up with garage days and i robot which are admittedly two movies i did not see um then he did knowing which was not great but also not bad and then seven years later gods of egypt which everyone hated and tanked and it's like what? I, I didn't hate, i didn't hate that i actually like that movie but again james doesn't, james doesn't hate anything no that's not true no that's <laughs> not true i hate a lot of stuff but i i i liked where it went with that again i think proyas is a, a really great visionary director i i didn't like knowing knowing was mm. meh that's a which meh one was knowing was that that's nicholas Nick, cage yeah right you know and yeah, it's oh like, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah it's very forgettable like you go mm-hmm. oh no oh, yeah that one yeah the okay. the, right. the plane that crash next, sequence no. in that film is harrowing but uh yeah, I didn't, yeah. yeah I didn't see that one I believe any film he's put out is like has a harrowing beautiful scene I will say your whole crow take I made fun of you but I don't really like the crow and mm-hmm. here's why okay um there's this the whole dead wife trope 
and uh, that being like you know and and we have to show something or have something horrible happen to her too she's not just like dead it's like yeah you know she like got like really killed like in yeah. the worst way possible you know disgusting um something that i admired about this film and i don't like the characterizations in this movie i think this movie has the characters are like I grabbed onto none of them. I did not like any of them. I didn't care. Kiefer was fun, but only because of how he acted him, the character. I'm <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. Sorry. I, I, I love Kiefer. So I'm like, Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> Sutherland was fun. Um, but I think that to its credit, this film doesn't use the dead wife trope, right? She's certainly mm-hmm. a bit of a damsel, a little bit. Granted, she she faces off against a stranger at one point, but she's still a bit of a, a damsel. She still is sort of like, I have to get back to my wife who I don't remember, which is a, really unbelievable. But <laughs> they did not kill her. So that was kind of, you know, at least, you know, yeah. as, as the impetus for him going on this quest for knowledge it was really about him so i i thought that was an improvement over the crow personally mm. um and visually the crow is amazing it's a, you know great film but um narratively i wasn't i was not impressed um, yeah i mean that's the comic also it's very much you yeah. know one side and again that's i always I, while, while i like like i like the crow a lot um yeah the comic book you know it was one of those indie comics that i latched onto when everyone else was like oh superman batman i'm like I was reading, you know, The Crow and Mad Men and Bone, and I'm like, I don't know what this other shit is. Like, like I'm, I'm cool because I'm like, I'm a teenager reading these like indie yeah. comic books. I think I we all order. have these indie darlings that were like, well, yeah. they were different than what was then, you know, what we had access to then. So right, right, and yeah. then it's funny because then years later, now it's like they they're more popular, and it's like almost like ah, <laughs> I liked it when it wasn't popular. Damn it. <laughs> in middle school i was reading um i was reading sandman at like 12 years yes. old which yes. like Sand- i vertigo yeah, vertigo was like my, my yes band. vertigo i remember being like choir class i was a high soprano back then never could touch it now that's like the, the highest notes <laughs> i was like second soprano and i was like sitting at the very top of the bleachers and i'd be like hunched down just like reading sandman <laughs> um and then my part would come up and i'd like do an ungodly high note and then go back but <laughs> yes yeah oh, man. um though the crow between that and uh robin hood prince of thieves uh introduced me to michael wincott which i'm like hey that oh. guy needs to be in more things he's anyway. so good in that movie yeah he's really good actually he's a good villain he's such a piece of shit yeah he, he is but. he is a good man. but anyway we are we are talking about um dark city of course um that i uh just navigate it away from the tab uh but you know you're you're right uh you're right josephine and also you talked about uh i mean coven the the, the book that you wrote and just yeah lovecraft eliminating uh women for the most part yeah. like I, we we did one of our earlier episodes was on an adaptation of the thing on the doorstep but it's like hey cool you introduce a woman character but just basically so that she can provide agency for the other man like oh yeah this movie um yeah, Jennifer Connelly is in it. She's Emma Murdoch. Mm-hmm. At points, she's playing this very sultry singer. Yeah. I think that her song sequences are terrible. Yes. Okay. I don't know if it was like, I don't know if, well, I don't know if it was like the, 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 not the vocals, but like the audio in this film, because I also think Kiefer Sutherland has scenes where he's just like mumbling the whole time. <laughs> um, and it, it's not, you know, it sounds terrible. I know a dude can project, you know, like I know I've seen him do other things but um jennifer connelly who's so, usually so wonderful she yeah i thought that those scenes with her being the sultry songstress were not convincing um yeah but she has these random scenes where she has this like sex appeal um or she's you know supposed to be projecting the sex appeal but largely the film while it's about a romance is very asexual to me very mm-hmm. not you know and barely even romantic i really didn't even understand why she was involved in the movie honestly um they should have just made john murdoch a woman gotten rid of the romance element but it's fine. Um, but it, it was interesting to me that this film that's about um, continuing a species, they completely removed the idea of like sexuality and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I was thinking about too, because, because this is impossibly tied to the matrix. Now the matrix is not an asexual series. Um, like, especially I'm thinking about that sex scene in the second one, which was like mm-hmm. definitely a route for everybody. Um, like everybody <laughs> saw that scene, but um it's it just interesting to me that they it's very Lovecraftian as well in that element that it, that they did remove sex from it because Lovecraft is all about procreation all about you know how that happens but he doesn't want to talk about the act oh, yeah. and if he alludes to it it's very scary but that's if he alludes to it because I would even argue like um Dunwich Horror which is literally about a guy keeping his daughter in a barn after getting her pregnant mm-hmm. um 
having her impregnated. It's not, you know, he doesn't talk about how that happened. She's just like in a barn. The horror is her body and stuff, which is, you know, another element of that procreative fear, which I think alien taps into. So speaking of Ridley. But yeah, so that that as well, like the asexual element of this film and how they randomly tried to shove in a little bit of sexuality and just didn't jive with the rest of the movie. I and I, you know, thinking back to what you said earlier um, about you know not connecting with any of the characters, I don't know if that was intentional or not because in a weird, I mean, it, it you wouldn't think it would be, but mm-hmm. it almost feels like the this alien race that are all the same. They're all basically they look the same because they're taking dead bodies, but they're only taking dead bodies that they shape the heads and are male. Yeah. Very, you know, there, were some, there were some women actually. There were, okay. In the, in, really... the, in the massive scenes. And the little, I think the little kid oh. is a girl. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't, okay. I'm not binary. So well, I don't want to be like girl, woman, but no, you know, no, I think course. it was a little girl. Yeah, yeah. You, no, were, but, you were correct. The, 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 sorry, James, the, the, yeah, no, yeah. The, the, little, the little one was played by a pair uh, of siblings, okay. a brother and a sister. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, non-binary actually. I but. But I, I, it's almost like it, it, it might be intentional, or at least like from like thinking about it from this conversation, that this alien race that doesn't really understand what humans are, are given like these bland memories. Like like they look beautiful, but like no, they're, they're really bland memories when you see it. It's like mm-hmm. oh, I had a beautiful time at the beach, and I drew in a book, and that's what my whole life is based on. Right, yeah. right. It's like it's like, yeah. like like bland and. Each one is so interchangeable. Like these characters, like, well, you were the guy at the hotel, but now we switched you with a black guy, and now you're the guy at the newspaper stand. But it doesn't matter. Like none yeah. of these people even matter because they're so interchangeable. And like ultimately, like you know, the whole thing William Hurt, like remembering his grandmother gave him this typewriter, but he doesn't know when. Right. That's like, and he brings it with him everywhere or his mother or whatever and it's like well i thought was that typewriter or was it a, a squeeze box uh it was oh, a, like the, yeah, uh, yeah yeah i believe it was a that thing yeah. that i i, I, I yeah. don't know why it just seemed funnier that like a typewriter in, in his back seat of his car that he drive around <laughs> like let me type a little bit but it's like but all these characters yeah like they, like really like are you rooting for john murdoch no because he's he's very like and i i love rufus sewell like you know i i really mm-hmm. do but like he's bland he's bland and all these characters are kind of yeah. bland. It's really Richard O'Brien is the only one that is has, even though he is very like mono, monotone, like creepy. Yeah. When he gets the memories, he starts to have like an actual like he's having fun now. As he has like a personality too. Right, yeah. and it's weird that the only one that has a personality is the stranger who actually has a human, but like like his memories. But yet none of them humans have any personality. They're very just like. I'm going to work. I hate my life. <laughs> like, what? And and again, it makes me think of the Matrix where you have like these people that are basically batteries and they're get, you know, they're given these memories. And like, you know, they had the chance to have this perfect world and they chose, they rebelled against it. So, and I always love that about, mm-hmm. yeah, human nature. We don't want to have like all the great things. We just, we want to suffer. And again, yeah. it almost yeah, feels like suck. these people are suffering in this darkness this dark world that is just perpetually midnight and it's yeah. like depressing but it, but it's also to me I, I love you know you know Jim I love that I love like dark depressing yeah. things yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what I love about it. it's like oh yeah human nature is they don't even realize that they're living in this world because they don't care it's like eh I guess it's always night I, I haven't seen daylight ever but <laughs> I, I guess that's what, what the world is right okay <laughs> whatever I guess I'll drive my taxi and be depressed you know whatever <laughs> i yeah and that night thing is where the rickets came from too i just had a note on my notes app so like weird notes this movie it just said rickets all caps explanations and i was like what um uh, what was i trying to say and what i was trying to say was that they all must have rickets I, and their diets like i know they can create or they can maybe i imagine that they are pulling matter out of somewhere and forming it you know like they have you know all right. these molecules stored somewhere but are they forming food that way like i know the automat exists but like where does that food come from who's you know are they just creating it star trek style or like is it you know by rearranging molecules or is it being grown like where how are they feeding these humans when well, they inject them? Is there a little protein, pet, you know, a little protein injection going on? And also does the, I mean, the, we understand the concept of 
this alien race is dying, so they're doing these experiments on humans to try and get to the nature of the human soul, I guess. But d does the film, I, I forget, even though I watched it last night, does the film actually detail, like, how this is going to help them as a species or a race survive? They Not need to really, figure right? out, yeah, yeah. what right. makes us human. Mm -hmm. Right, it's like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland is the one that understands how to transmit memories and the, the soul or whatever you want to say. But even he doesn't really explain it when they're asking, what are they doing? Well, they want to know this, but why? Eh, they just want to. <laughs> yeah, they're I got dying. the feeling. So they definitely use us as hosts. Um, yeah. And I got the feeling they thought that we would somehow cockroach their species. Like we would somehow live yeah. longer, but this was, it's curious to me because the nineties is when climate, the conversation on climate change really picked up in the public consciousness. Like we knew there was an issue like in the seventies and earlier, yeah. but um, the nineties, we start getting El Nino and we start having these conversations about the big UV ray that's going to focus on the earth and kill all, <laughs> you know, the, the big hole through the atmosphere, yeah. um, et cetera. And, and for me, a film where somehow humans are going to survive longer than this like super advanced hive mind yeah. mm -hmm. um, that can that can transfer its memories between you know different biological entities seems a little thin but um, maybe they're <laughs> I mean how do we account for mass trauma too if you know you're going to die out maybe they're all not thinking clearly mm -hmm. um, right. I also think that my reading this is like an off the wall reading is that it's not that they thought that we would survive longer but they're just they're just big fan boys and girls of us I was noting in the film that they believe, you know, they believe that we're lesser, but that we somehow will, will survive longer than them with mm. their memories, you know, preserved. But they like, when they craft a clock, the big clock that determines when they need to switch everyone around, mm -hmm. um, it has a human face on it, which was really curious right. to me. So I was like, did you guys just see a human one time? You were like, those guys are cute <laughs> as hell. Like, <laughs> I love them. I want to be them. I want, I love everything about them. We're going to take a few, keep them as pets. Like that's my reading. Um, Cause it makes more sense than believing that we're somehow the cockroach to their, you know, their extremely advanced society. It's also kind of poor, uh, a poor scientific process. If like, you can't even uh, test how long your hypothesis is going because you're changing things up every day. It's yeah. like, great. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, it is very, it is very, it is very strange. Doesn't make a ton of sense. And is in stark contrast to something like, the day the earth stood still in the 1950s when it's like hey we do have the technology to allow you to survive and you fucking people are not ready for it yet so we're gonna right. have here yeah, stop guys <laughs> right. like um oh, what's that movie that just came out with villeneuve did that one too uh villeneuve's movie oh, arrival. About the, thank you arrival oh, arrival is the same thing thank you yeah, i yeah. yeah every every chance i get i want to reference that movie because of it and the ship design same ship designer as dune the new dune yep mm-hmm that was the other blockbuster I saw. I saw Dune. I lied. I saw Dune. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess, Josephine, you already hit on this, um, but I, I did because uh, there are apparently two different interpretations from some of the creatives in the sense that Proyas believes uh, that the humans are on board an interstellar spacecraft that was captured by the strangers, whereas David S. Goyer believes in a more spiritual interpretation in which that uh, everyone is dead um, <laughs> and they all live in kind of like a purgatory um, in which uh, is made up of, of people that the strangers have selected or abducted from different eras in history. So this is like the good place is like the show. The good place is just like a yeah. remake of this film. Is what I'm saying. Like, Basically, yeah. yeah. Ted Danson is a stranger. Yeah. Ooh. Yes. Ooh, I like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's good. It works. Um, that's fascinating. I because it's so mid-century inspired i wasn't I, I know that like twilight zone was an influence yeah. i was honestly just thinking about the like ufos came to earth meant to take some cows grab some humans and this is what happened <laughs> yeah, yeah um yeah. like i i like they're very elegant like way of thinking about it but i like the old-fashioned old-fashioned abduction story like right i like that too and and to be honest with you i had misremembered like i said some of the gaps that i have from going so long between watching this movie that i, I had misremembered and assumed that the memories he has of shell beach were real things from earth but now they are in a place which is not in earth so that like as you yes. said they kind of took a bunch of people and they're putting right. them in space because maybe Earth has died or is dying or whatever. And then it Or maybe out. it didn't. Like we have no idea if Earth is still around. You know what I mean? Like they don't yeah. they don't actually cover that. Like they could have literally just kidnapped like 20, 30 people and let them procreate on this little Yeah. Because when, when they're, they're when they're space. going through the when they're like rowing down the canal, like Sewell even asked them, like, where did we come from? And Keith Sutton's like, no one like, remembers that. Yeah, that he can't remember because he only has memories of his scientific background. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, he was allowed to keep that because the strangers who are very advanced couldn't actually get that, which I kind of love that they they actually needed a human to do that for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, a little flawed, your whole experiment, actually. <laughs> I have, um, yeah, it seemed like they, this was really a rush job. Honestly, they didn't spend yeah. any time studying humans at all. Like, you know, anthropologically, like from kind of far, they were just like, shit, we got to get some of these. That's why my fandom theory holds up because they just were yep. obsessed with us kidnapped us um here's a question the so i know that uh, you know john murdoch you know creates the ocean essentially to create shellbridge like later um but there was the ocean before because there was a harbor Mm. and there was the bathhouse where Kiefer sutherland is meeting with um Mm. you know john murdoch and i what is Kiefer sutherland's name i need to stop just being there dr daniel schreiber yes thank you i have it on front okay frank bumstead what an unfortunate name <laughs> <I know. laughs> um i'm the inspector bumstead bumstead okay um anyway uh dr schreiber meets with john murdoch and the strangers sometimes inside of a bathhouse um mm-hmm. and he explains that this is because the strangers have an aversion to water so mm-hmm. like why did they even put a bathhouse right. like if humans can't remember anything anyway why was it really important that they make sure there's an ocean a bathhouse like they could have just been like your culture never takes baths like you yeah know. they're dirty forever yeah or like sand baths or like tank girl or something but <laughs> yes. i don't like i don't understand what they were doing and that's why my fandom theory holds up because they're big fans of everything we do there yeah. it is Maybe the same. Maybe they're the same aliens from Signs. Who, mm. let's, go, let's go to a planet <laughs> where most of it is water that we're allergic to. I um, love that that film is simultaneously. Everyone agrees like it's a terrible movie, but also one of the most terrifying they've ever seen. Yes, yes. Like it, you know that one that one scene like ruined everyone's childhood. Everyone at the same time, we all let out a collective sigh because our childhoods were over. <laughs> No matter how old you were, that was it. Your your childhood in this sense is dead. You're scared. I don't know. I I guess I why did why did these creatures create a land where there's or a universe where there's water when it's so I I guess yeah. I and this this doesn't entirely make sense, but I guess I kind of see it as sort of like the creators of the matrix kind of having to make it where it's flawed in it because that's how humans would right. understand it, you know? Um maybe if we did live in a city where there weren't showers or pools or something it'd be harder for them to control their experiment i I don't that doesn't entirely make sense but neither does the movie itself so that's fine i think um also if they if all the humans were abducted from like one area like they literally went to one city and were like here we're taking you if they were all in new york they would all remember a harbor so it's possible too that the aliens apparently failing in their Mm. anthropological studies um only having these these finite memories might be like, well, you know, their natural habitat has an ocean. So yeah, no, it's natural. We got to put it in there. If, if they submitted their experiment to a, a peer reviewed journal, I don't know if it would be a consideration. I don't think it has. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't know how much more I have to say about um, Dark City. Do either two of you have any, any final thoughts, any other questions or things you wanted to discuss before we, we wrap this up? Um, I did just want to mention when we were talking about aesthetics before the, you know, it is very much drawn from mid-century mishmash of things and not just mid-century. I keep using it as like a catch-all. I know in design, that means a very specific, like eight years or whatever, but, um, you know, that era. Um, but I did like, uh, James, before you mentioned the spirals that they keep mm-hmm. showing up, like even in the final fight scene, when they're cracking apart everything, it yeah. cracks in a spiral. Mm. Gorgeous. They slipped in these little moments of alien aesthetics, like for instance, all the syringes and there's a switchblade at one point that are um, very like almost gas lampy, like in mm-hmm. their in their design, they're, they're big, they're metal, um, they have spirals on them. Um, and the clock itself was very um, kind of industrial gas lamp to me. Mm. And I, I I thought that that was such a beautiful addition. Um, and the the whole underground area that was shot in an amphitheater that's 50 feet tall. Most yeah. sets, I guess, are 36 feet. Um, so it was this giant space that they had to build. And it was, it was all supposed to be alien. And the way that they handled that and still tried and still kind of slipped in the human elements the human architectural elements which is fascinating to me i love seeing those weird syringes against the 1940s you know um (laughs) hotel room or whatever it was just i just thought that was wonderful little moments that really made it science fiction and not not even just a straight noir 
Yeah, that's that's a that's a really cool thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think my my final thought on this is just like I I love this movie. It's really good. Uh, I think what ultimately stops it from being kind of like not transcendent, but as influential is yeah the the romance at the heart of it just doesn't really make a whole ton of sense because yeah as James as you said, Murdoch is not really a character or like at least when it comes to like the Matrix like yes Neo was the one but also the story from the very beginning signals to you of like there is something special about him and this is why this is Neo's story. Right. This film doesn't do a great job as explaining why this is John Murdoch's story. Um, like, because it's almost like, was he, did he wake up while being imprinted? Yes. But you also get the impression, especially because of that cop who goes insane and kills himself, like yeah. waking up during imprinting is not a unique thing to this individual. So is there something special about him or is this just like, you know, when you think of, okay, if you're telling a story, which is basically we're starting in the middle of countless number of loops and repetitions, why is this repetition the one that we are seeing? And I don't know if the film does a... Yeah perfect job kind of explaining that um and yes jennifer connelly kind of wasted which is unfortunate because she and she's so good yeah it was it was a way they had three like excellent actors or four actually excellent actors at its core and they didn't um and they i feel like they did not use jennifer connelly well or even her chemistry with all the other three you know Hmm. her and that you know her and the detective were like was like that was like my duo. I was ready for them to go, right. go bust, bust into a stranger, you know, hideout, and like shoot <laughs> some guys, you know, it was great. But um, I do, uh, I think this movie relies heavily on the like very special white man trope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it relies <laughs> yeah. on it completely because yeah, there is no Im- impetus for why John is special in particular. It's like, oh yeah, well he, we told you, we told you he's a special one. So, mm-hmm. and I think the matrix did blow that up as far as like they really gave us the, the foundation and plus it's a trans allegory, but you know, the foundation right. for, for why we care about Neo and why we're following his story. And John was definitely like, here's Harry Potter, you know, this is, you know, sort of almost the Harry Potter era, but you know, it's like, here's the very special little boy. He's going to go do his adventure. Just follow it. Just do it. It's okay. Yeah. Don't ask questions. <laughs> um, well, and also you mentioned, cause especially too, in the, in the matrix resurrections, which the theme of that is like, it's not just Neo who was the important one, but yeah. also trinity which i think is is really super cool um josephine um now that people have been more exposed to you just beyond um your readings from at the mountains of madness um if people want to find out more about you dig into some of your stuff where can they uh, where can they get in touch with you yeah so you can i have a website jm yales so it's like josephine maria jm and then yales.com um and then i'm on twitter i am jm yales the at sign before that i think I think that's my Twitter handle. Right now I'm Josephine's ghost. So if you type that in, I might be there. But um, yeah, JM Yala. So I'm on Twitter all the time, every day, way too much. So check me out there. I do a lot of threads. I'm doing a, hu- a huge thread on Batman, the animated series, breaking down the design elements, the themes, a super anti-neoliberal take on it. Um, so if you're into like leftism, that's on there. I also talk about cosmic horror and Sailor Moon a lot. So Oh wow! Check me on Twitter. Yeah, there's a zine forthcoming. There's a zine forthcoming. That's okay. That's really cool. Well, it's coming. Wonderful. Well, all these links and uh, also Josephine, if there's anything else you want us to just email to over to me, and you'll be able to find it in the show notes, kids. Um, we are of course uh, the Cast of Cthulhu. You can find us on Twitter at Cast Cthulhu. Who knows when you'll be able to find James on Twitter again? Um, I don't know. I might have to create a new account, and then I'll get banned. For that <laughs> and then you get banned for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he was at one point, and maybe will be again, fistful of media. Um, I am Nolan Fixes Teeth. You can also find us on Facebook, Podbean, pretty much anywhere else you can get your favorite podcasts. Um, and you can still find our wonderful At the Mountains of Madness uh, virtual table read um, in December, which was a smashing success, I'd like to Super think. Super fun, yeah. Uh, um, many talented and wonderful people involved in that. New friends, old friends, um, and us as well, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so it is January. It is, it, it is a new year. Um, what is our next episode? We have one, um, but spoiler alert uh, to people, it is neither new nor unique. Um, we did have a Patreon. We still, as of this recording, have a Patreon. Uh, we're giving up on the Patreon because basically we don't have the time or effort to uh, contribute yeah. new things to the Patreon. So we're going to be um, putting a close to that. And so um, you will all be the benefactors because our next episode will be, we're going to release the interview with writer-director of Starfish, Al White, 
for the free feed so that all of you can listen to that. That was a ton of fun. It was recorded a little bit earlier yeah. in the pandemic. So there is at the start a lot of talk about how we are surviving the pandemic. But yeah. seeing as Omicron is a thing, um, it's kind of like Dark City more relevant than ever, I suppose. <laughs> so. um, yeah. yeah, but Josephine, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. And uh, you've helped change my mind a little bit because I was all like, this isn't Lovecraftian. And then you dropped your knowledge on me. I was like, shit, yeah, okay. Um <laughs> Maybe it is. That'll, that'll, yeah, 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 that'll teach me to be the presumptuous white guy. So, <laughs> yeah. so thank the you for presumptuous that. white hero. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is Jim's story. We're just side characters. Um, well, anyway, this was wonderful. So thank you, Josephine. Thank you, James. And uh, yeah, uh, be sure to tune in next time. Everyone will, will be um, releasing that interview with um, Starfish writer director Al White. In the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with dead Cthulhu in his house in Rilia on the edge of Dark City. Thank you.